<coughs> Sorry. Um, let's see. I hope I don't forget to make this announcement. Let's let's start. Any any pr prayer requests for today? They're fine. Um, here, say hello to somebody. Come on. Come, say hello to somebody. She's trying to straighten me out here. Um, and hopeless. Yeah, hopeless. hopeless. Hi, Suzanne. Hey. Hi. Hi, Mike. Kathy. Yeah. Hi, Connie. Hi. Bob Good and Karen. You. Good to see you all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of, speaking of kids, my daughter is pregnant again. This is this the one, you know, I kept her two babies last night. Now she's having the third one. <laughs> but she's got, um, she has this goiter on her uh, thyroid, I guess, or in her neck. And they, she did the little sonogram this afternoon. And um, I just want to pray for that. Um, you know, normally it's not too much to be concerned of, but um, it's about five, I think they said five centimeters. How, um, how far along is she, Connie? She's nine weeks. Nine weeks, really young, early. Yeah. What's the? Oh, do, do you have a name yet? Do you know? Samantha. No, no, we don't know if it's no. a boy or a girl. But yeah, but my daughter is Samantha, and her husband is Christopher. It's for the child, right? Yeah. It's for the baby. Yeah. Well, I mean, my daughter has the the uh, the the in her throat. Oh, it's your daughter. My daughter has okay. the. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Is that going to affect the pregnancy, Connie? I don't know. I guess we'll find out more. Uh, she just went to the doctor yesterday and then had the sonogram today, and uh, we'll, we should find out more by the end of the week. And her name is Samantha? Samantha. Yeah. Anybody else? Um, the baby that I prayed for last week, the, um, the premature baby, uh, I, I can't remember her name. I'm, I'm having a senior moment. But, uh, You're too young to have girl. senior moments. Come, will you get <laughs> real here? She's a little here? girl, and she opened her eyes this week, but she's only about two pounds. Two pounds. So, so yeah. Uh, she okay. Pray for her. Yes, absolutely. What? You are bad. You're supposed to come back with her name today. Um, what are her parents' names? Do you know? Um, yeah, I don't because I'm friends with her grandfather. Okay. So I'm not uh, okay. terrible. Next I week I'll get my phone. Next week, no, next week, no. You you got a you got a homework. Um any anybody else? Anybody else? I have one, Bob. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, my daughter is a college student up in Kansas. She has a part time job working with the boys and girls clubs up there. One of her one of her students that she cares for, uh, she overheard in conversation talking about suicide. Yeah, was he's, he's a ten-year-old boy, so she brought it to the director. They had a conference with the parents, and that was, you know, that's she did the right thing. But then a week later, he actually attempted it. Yeah. Swallowed a large volume of steroids he had taken out of the medicine cabinet and was hospitalized. So, ten-year-old boy, his name's Jason. Uh, so, what's your daughter's name, Mike? Uh, Mary. Mary. Yeah, she's very distraught. And yeah. She's She's coming around now because she really did all that she could, but yep. it, she's taking it very hard. Yep. 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 No, I won't die. Anybody else? Anybody else? 
Okay, let's um, let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Oh God. Um, thank you for the gift of our life from you, Lord, and for your presence with us. Can't imagine a life without you. I don't know how people. Um, we all avoid suffering as much as we can. I, hard to imagine people who can't turn to you in suffering. Um, what a great presence um, that you are in our lives that can't imagine our lives without you. For your presence with us always, thank you for your presence in this group. It is um, a great source of strength to me and I think for all of us, for all that these poets are giving us, um, for the inspiration and the insights, the deepening knowledge that we're um, it's becoming a part of our lives. Um, for all you are to us, um, thank you. Um, stay with us, please. Lose none of us. Um, keep us close to you. Let nothing separate us from you. No matter what our sins are, no matter what our sins are, um, the guy in the temple was closer to you. The guy next to you on the cross um, Peter's betrayal. I mean, our sins cannot, cannot keep us from you. I ask a special prayer for all of us, whatever burdens we carry, not to let any of them or our sense of our own sins diminish in any way our trust in you or our faith. Um, help us to stand up straight even with our faults and weaknesses, trusting in you. You, you have faced everything. You face death, you face evil, you put evil away when we couldn't. There's nowhere to turn but to you, so strengthen us, please. I ask for a special blessing on Samantha, for Connie's daughter. Watch over her in this pregnancy. Um, protect the child, keep the child safe. Um, I'm going to say right now, protect Connie. <laughs> from from all from all from the rest of her family, <laughs> let that poor woman get some sleep tonight. Um, quiet her heart. Let her have a comforting night tonight and a joy in it for the joy that she awfully takes in her family. Ask for a special grace for Mary. Let her heart quiet. Um, it's I, I think it's natural for so many of us to shun death to it away. I remember the description in St. Catherine when she was there when the guy was executed. He was beheaded. She caught his head in her lap, blood all over her, and she didn't shrink, she didn't turn away. She saw in that blood the blood of the Eucharist and blessed it. Strengthen all of us to not be afraid of death, to make a place for it. Let that be for Mary. Um, had to be difficult to make a decision like that. Not her fault what the boy did. Um, she did what she should have. Um, we can't escape you know, the, what people do. It's what we bear. It's our life with you. So strengthen her in her faith. Know that that's a part of her faith, that there's a good, um, whatever happens to the young boy. Um, let that be so for all of us. I ask a special blessing for Jason. Um, help him. It's a cry for help, so deep what he's doing. It's an obvious cry for help. Um, help him to get the help he needs. Um, and let Mary 
step forward some way, not be afraid of anything she's done, not to be afraid. Um, let her find courage, um, trusting in you, whatever she does. Um, I'd ask for everybody's prayers for friends of ours, John and Mary Galton, dear, dear friends for a long time. Mary just underwent a, what would have been an easy procedure, but was put in the hospital and she got pneumonia. God, hospital is the last place we want to be these days, um, given what's going on. She's home and recovering. Be with her. Help her to recover. Protect her, please. And be with John. And um, old acquaintance through John, largely, Ray Dennehy, who was a professor at UD when John was, or at um, USF when John was there. Great fighter at, at the early stages of um, contraceptions and abortions and homosexuality. He was there at the beginning fighting it. Professor of philosophy. He's in hospice right now. His whole life has been a preparation for this moment. Let a great sharp light come to him as the fruit of a life of preparation so that there will be some glimpse of glory because his whole life has been pointing there. Let it be for him and be with him in his passage. Um, um, any, um, we offer all of these prayers to you, Christ our Lord. Amen. Somebody's got a phone on. I, I don't, somebody's got a phone on. Is that, can anybody identify it? Um, before I forget, because I, if I don't do it now, I know I will forget. Um, I'm scheduled to give the talk this weekend. It, it was a genuine pleasure seeing you guys. I can't, I'm being really honest, you, if you knew me at all, you know how much I don't like virtual. It's, my home space is in the body. I just, it, it's good to be physically present with each other. Um, I'm always glad to hug somebody. I shake a man's hand and give him a hug. I just, we are carnate creatures, incarnate. And so it was just a joy seeing you all. Um, I'm giving, I think what's the final talk, I'm not sure this Sunday. I think it's going to be an eye-opener, and I'm saying that really honestly. You guys have known me now for a year. I don't know that there's anything new I could say to you guys, but um, but I'm glad for the chance to do this, and I think it'll be an eye-opener for a lot of people. I'm, it's The title is, What's Wrong with the World? <laughs> um, I, I want to nail the world. I'm, I'm, I'm going to nail the world pretty hard. But the other side of it is, what's wrong with the world, and how do we recover the sacred? Um, so I'm turning my mind on all of that. I would be grateful, by the way, for your prayers, you know, for the preparation going into this weekend. But anyway, I'll be there. Um, if any of you have time, come. It would be a pleasure to see you and bring your friends. I think it's going to be a good talk. I hope, I hope it'll be a good talk um, because I think it's really needed. Um, long, long time ago when we were coming to the church, I remember a priest saying to me, it's really important to know your enemy. <laughs> And I believe that. I, I just think we have to know what we're dealing with in our world. And I think a lot of people know a lot, but I think there's a lot they don't know. So I hope I can shed some light on that. Anyway, I hope to see you. It's at 6.30 at, at C's again. So um, if you can come, come. Um, I think at this point I'm going to postpone class next week. Um, I meant to get a, an email to you to 
feel you guys out to hear your what your thoughts are about going forward but I didn't it's just been a busy week I, I will get out a letter to you in the next week before we meet again but let's plan not to meet next week we won't get through the Paradiso tonight I, I'm going to try to get as close as I can to finish it but we, we won't finish it tonight we plan to finish it the next time we meet I will write you an email offering some suggestions about going forward and um, whether you guys want to continue um, you know where your mind where your hearts are about these things so I'll send an email um, and please all of you get back to me let me know what your thoughts are about any of this okay I think that's all if we um, I, um, it might chronologically the next step would be Chaucer and then Shakespeare we've been doing Flannery O'Connor's The Violent Bared Away which I think is so important anyway I've got a couple of modern works Flannery O'Connor's The Violent Bared Away T.S. Eliot's Murder of the Cathedral which is about um, Thomas Beckett's uh, Martyrdom it's it's a powerful powerful play about martyrdom um, we see a man wrestling with his motives whether he's going into this for the right reason it's a troubling play very really powerful and Dostoevsky's brothers Karamazov they all speak to profound spiritual evils and graces that are greater than those evils it's what sets those men apart they're very clear about the sins about the demonic in our world but they also answer them which is not true of a lot of moderns a lot of moderns see violence everywhere but they don't give good answers to them so I've got those on my mind I'll send you a letter you know spelling some things out and I would really like to hear your thoughts in response to the questions I have okay we're gonna start Edwin Arlington Robinson I've been promising that for weeks and it's a little bit strange because it's a very quaint sort of down-to-earth poem and we're doing this while we're in the heights of the heavens in the Paradiso with Dante so it's may strike you as a little bit strange but I'm glad to do it because it's so ordinary and so familiar but it's a tender touching poem it's about two old men growing old approaching death seen from the perspective of a young boy it's a very tender poem um, I'm going to read it in parts because it's too long but go online into our poetry section and pick it out and print it and take it to bed with you and read it you should be able to read it in not too long a time it's it's just not that long it's not as difficult as the Auden poem we did it's much much simpler much much more readable um, but pick it out and read it and I'll, I'll take sections for the new for the next few weeks um, so it'll take us a few weeks to get through it okay but I'll start it tonight um, great 20th century or late 19th century 20th century poet I, I think one of the most remarkable of the century he's um, he doesn't get the recognition I think he deserves but he's he's known as a great American poet he's got um, um, anthology classics Richard Corey um, what's the one I'm um, Luke yeah Luke Haver Luke Havergal which I think is a prophetic poem dark dark prophetic poem Luke Havergal Luke Havergal and um, Richard Corey 
are among the most famous. They're in all American anthologies that, that they're that, that popular. This poem won't get in because it's too long. But he's a wonderful poet. He belongs with Robert Frost. He seems to give this casual world, but behind it are lurking other things. So, Isaac and Archibald. Isaac and Archibald were two old men. I knew them, and I may have laughed at them a little, but I must have honored them, for they were old, and they were good to me. I do not think of either of them now without remembering, infallibly, a journey that I made one afternoon with Isaac to find out what Archibald was doing with his oats. It was high time those oats were cut, said Isaac, and he feared that Archibald, well, he could never feel quite sure of Archibald. Accordingly, that good old man invited me, that is, permitted me, to go along with him, and I, with a small boy's adhesiveness to competent old age, got up and went. I do not know that I cared overmuch for Archibald's or anybody's oats, but Archibald was quite another thing, and Isaac yet another, and the world was wide and there was gladness everywhere. We walked together down the river road with all the warmth and wonder of the land around us and the wayside flash of leaves, and Isaac said the day was glorious. Somewhere at the end of the first mile, I found that I was figuring to find how long those ancient legs of him would keep the pace that he had set for them. The sun was hot, and I was ready to sweat blood. But Isaac, for aught I could make of him, was cool to his hat band. So I said then, with a dry gasp of affable despair, something about the scorching days we have in August, without knowing it sometimes, but Isaac said the day was like a dream, and praised the Lord, and talked about the breeze. I made a fair confession of the breeze, and crowded casually on his thought. The nearness of a profitable nook that I could see. He wanted to sit down. The old man wanted to keep going. First I was half inclined to caution him that he was growing old. But something that was not compassion soon made plain the folly of all subterfuge. Isaac was old but not so old as that. So I proposed without an overture that we be seated in the shade a while, and Isaac made no murmur. Soon the talk was turned on Archibald. He'll go on. That's the beginning of the second section. I'll pick up there when we start. I just want to keep this brief, but I'll read the next um, couple of stanzas the next time we meet. Okay? <coughs> Isaac and Archibald. <coughs> okay, Dante. Okay. Last time we were at the heaven of Jupiter looking at the eye of the eagle and I left you guys with a couple of questions. Um, but let me just for a moment try to recall some of the important things um, that we're looking at here um, because they're strange. Um, you remember that we, um, that the, the, Dante's scheme was set up in stages. The first few planets were in the shadow of the earth and those beyond were outside of it. So from the first stage which dealt with um, um, worldly sensible things, we progressed into a dimension of super sensual. So we were approaching the contemplative life and we will pass from that um, to the Imperium and heaven itself. But we've been seeing all along that we've entered a strange world. 
I think Anne raised a really good question last night, or a, was a scrupular question, you know, that about Dante seeing hell and you know seeing all of this. Um, the only thing that we know about heaven, aside from some small things that Plato's done and some mystics, the mystics who've described their mystical experiences of union with God, is what we got from Paul in his description as the third heaven, and it's practically nothing. And and his um, saying that of that realm I hath not seen, ear hath not heard. He's describing something that can't be put in human terms. Dante's giving us a glimpse of that supernatural world and the the beauty that's I, I don't think surpassed. No, nobody, nobody, nobody has done what Dante's done. There's nothing that he does that is not in accord with nature. It's an extrapolation of it um, towards everything that Christ revealed in the Transfiguration and everything else he said. So there's nothing fantastical or strange in some ways when we go up to heavens we feel like we're at home we're in the world that we know it as we know it but we've also entered another realm and we understand that that realm is um, only available to a faith now Beatrice is his guide and she's doing everything she can to use reason to make sense of that faith but that's a world only available to faith because it's taking us to supersensible realities. Now this is absolutely fundamental to St. Thomas. St. Thomas maintained, following Aristotle, and I think he's right on this and Plato's wrong, and the Protestant world's got it wrong on this. Um, St. Thomas says that all knowledge begins in the senses. There is nothing that gets into the head that doesn't begin in the senses. We don't begin with innate ideas. It's Descartes' position and so many modern philosophers. Um, nothing gets in our head that doesn't first come to us through our senses. So the world of heaven is beyond our knowing. It's beyond our senses. So we can't know. We know it through faith. But we can we can't extrapolate. We can project forward from what we know by nature to certain qualities of that world. And we've been going over that um, pretty extensively from the beginning. And let me just recall some of them. And I, I want everybody to remember, those of you who are at the talk, I, I want to, sorry if I'm repeating myself here, but I want to go back to that principle that I spoke to in, a, in the talk a, um, a, week, a week ago. But Dante used the word, very beginning of the Paradiso, transhumanized. Beatrice looked up at the sun what human being could look at the sun? So we're already in a world of grace. She looks at the sun, and Dante, looking at her, looks at the sun. He's not blinded by it. So we've entered a world already beyond the senses, even though everything that's going to take place is rooted in the senses. The moon, all the planets, right? The word transhumanized. When Dante ascends, this is in Canto 10, He's no more aware of ascending than a thought before it comes. Time and space are different. It happens before he knows it. Just, just the way something happened. Imagine this. As we don't know when a thought comes until it's there, right? 
But imagine that space between, I'm, I'm, this is going to mysticism, and I don't want to go too deeply in the bits here, but just hear this. St. Thomas would say, long before we ever get to speaking a word, the word that comes out of our mouth, hold on to this. There's a verbum, an inner word, of which we're not aware. Now, if that doesn't make sense, at least consider this. Where did that word that we spoke come from? Right? It had to have an origin somewhere. So Thomas is saying there's this inner verb and this inner word. Where did that come? Obviously from the word and our psyche, whatever, our, whatever way our psyche engages with Christ. So Dante ascends um, in the same way that a thought happens before we know it. He gives all of these um, Peans, these praises of the Trinity and the God that's at the center of the, the opening paragraph of the of the Perdiso um, expresses it perfectly. Uh, this is the opening stanza. It, it we're going to f- find that repeated today at the end of our talk. So what was announced at the beginning is something we've been moving towards all along. Opening opening stanza of the Perdiso. The glory of the one who moves all things penetrates all the universe, reflecting in one part more and another less. There is not any place in the universe that does not reflect its creator. How could it be? It's like taking a passage from Shakespeare and imagining that it could exist on its own. <laughs> Shakespeare is everywhere present, even if we don't see him. The word theosis, T-H-E-I-O-S-I-S. T-H-E-I-O-S-I-S. God becoming man so that man could become God. God took on our nature. Christ took our nature back with him, asked us to share. He even left the Eucharist and asked us to participate in his divine nature by taking it in. So that we enter into a world of faith And if we do, it means we begin to see the world differently from the way we would have before we had faith. I hope that's self-evident. So I keep going back to my parking lot example. Um, I was really grateful that Michelle (laughs) piped up the way she did in the talk. I was just laughing because she was laughing and she was actually, she was like a thought before it happens. She was ahead of me. I mean, I was going there, but she already knew where I was going. When we take Christ into us, where are we? You know, it's that apophatic space I've been talking about. Um, So we begin to see the world differently. We're we're not just confined to our senses, even though everything begins there. We enter a world in which everything present to our senses is real, but we also see that because Christ entered the world, he sanctified everything, he changed everything, he's present. He reminded us that he's always there. We've talked about indwelling as one of the conditions of heaven, that the characters are anticipating their thoughts. Beatrice knows what Dante's thinking before he even expresses it. They are becoming one with each other. And last time we met, we, we had that wonderful passage, um, it's in page 502, when they entered the sphere of Jupiter. Um, I heard its voice using words like I and mine when in conception it was we and ours. Yeah? 
how do you how how can we use language wait because our language is time bound and space bound right I've got this cup I'm in front of a computer when you enter the kingdom and there is no longer a past or a future everything's a present then how do you use language to express something that's beyond what language can get to we run up against the boundaries of language right so Dante has this wonderful expression I heard its voice use words like I and mine when in conception it was we and ours because in heaven <clears throat> everything is shared everything's indwelling yeah <clears throat> God is in Godding. He's one with everybody. Everybody else is one with each other. Um, we live in a human... I mean, I, we, I know you all know this because no matter how isolated or alone any of us is sometime in our lives, we always carry somebody else with us. Connie's going to carry her grandchild with her the rest of the evening in a pretty physical way. Um... You know, in our marriages, you know, I carry Suzanne a lot. She carries me. Sad, or I don't know if that's good or bad for her, but um, for her to have to bear. So we know that, yeah. But extend it now into God's present. What does that mean? How can we find a language adequately to describe that? So over and over and over again, Dante is helping us to take a world into us, in make it interior, inward. So this world of faith isn't just an, ab um, an abstraction, an idea. It's becoming realized concretely. This is the world that faith brings to us. And I'm going to make a, I'm going to go out on a limb here. He's taking us into a super sensible, super sense, super sensible world, right? Super sensory world. Um, how much of that world is real to people of faith? I, we know it is for mystics. How real is it for any of us? It was the um, brunt of my talk, you know, last week. Do we really see Christ as he is? And I was trying to, I mean, the whole purpose of the talk series was to get people back to church. And the, one of the points that I was making is, do we really see Christ as he is? And to try to make that clear, I went to the Trinity and began there and said, you know, in the Trinity, we've gone through this. All the gods are, or all the persons are indwelling. Not one of them is not less than two, or two not more than one. They are one whole each, <clears throat> three distinct persons, one God. That's an amazing concept. If Christ came down, he took on the nature of a babe. He could not even feed himself. He would have died if Mary had not suckled him. He could, he, his hand made the universe. He could not even use his hand, you know, to draw himself closer to her breast. So God entered time. He took on our human nature. The, 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 the God who created the sun took on our human nature. And I'm assuming he would have been blinded by it because he suffered death. But <clears throat> Dante's doing everything he can <clears throat> to show us that there is a supersensible world that we enter by faith. Now here's one of the great problems or paradoxes of this moment, and I think it goes to Anne's comment last week. In God's 
world, in heaven, there is no past or future, right? It's an eternal present. Which means there's no sequence anymore. I think this should, I mean, this is, <laughs> Connie, if you didn't have a headache before, <laughs> we live in a world of sequence, right? One step at a time. We do this, and then this, and then this, and then this. That's the meaning of our life. And, then, and we, you know from Boethius that that present moment is the only real moment, because once it passes, it's a shade of itself. What I said two minutes ago is already gone. What's about to be said isn't there yet. What's real is now. So this present moment is like a parody of the eternal present of God. It's our way of participating in that life. It's brief and it's fleeting and shadowy. It's here and gone. Yeah? Is everybody with me? But we're in a world of sequence. What do we make of Dante's world when he's entering... Remember, he's passing through the universe, so he's still in a world of sequence. He's going from one planet to another. But he's going to end up in the Imperium with God in his presence, in which there will be no past or future. So all of this is a preparation for that world, and Dante's doing everything he can to orient us, to, to work off of what's familiar to us, and still take us to something that's not familiar. That's the world that faith opens to us. And he's doing it gradually <clears throat> because we're in the world, in the planets, moving towards God's timeless order. Let me, let me stop for a moment. Is that clear? And so it, it matters how we read this poem. We, we've got to be aware that we're still in the sensible world, the universe as we know it. But Dante's already entering it through faith. So that means he's transhumanized. He can look at the sun. He passes through the moon. It's like Christ passing through the doors. So the physical world, the principle that two bodies can't occupy the same space, doesn't apply anymore. He enters the moon. And we know as he passes through the heavens, his eyes, um, his power of vision increases, and he becomes capable of seeing more and more beauty, a beauty that we know would have blinded him if it hit him initially, if he hadn't been prepared for it. So let me stop. Is that, is that, in some ways I think I'm just repeating, but it's just by way of review to, to reinforce what we've been doing. Any questions about that? You all look, Mm -mm, you all look troubled here. What did I do? What's, what's, Michael, you look troubled. No, you you just covered a lot. I, I was, I'm still thinking about some of the first things you said. Uh, and when you mentioned it last week about the eagle and when he said, you know, when he spoke saying I, but it, all of the spirits heard we, it reminded me of the conversation back in the Purgatorio about partnership and yep. how there's an earthly partnership yep. where you know sharing with another person divides the goods right the right heavenly partnership is uh, a union between souls and so it's uh, sharing is actually uh, more grace and more uh, yeah it, it, 
I don't know why I made that connection. It's no, 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 it's a good one. I'm glad you did. Wait, by the way, here's a question I wanted to ask you. So, um, we all speak English. You know, some people speak Spanish, some people speak Turkish or whatever language. What's the language going to be in heaven? Our language binds us. I mean, we've got a certain grammatical structure. It's very different from German or Latin or Greek. You know, what's the language going to be in heaven? And, and how can somebody who's Greek be one with somebody who's Turkish when their languages are so different? Or English and Italian or, you know, whatever they are. It's just another way of saying, you know, that, 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 that the dimension, the realm that Dante's describing, he's coming to from our perspective, but he's got, it's because it's the only way we can get there. He, he can only get there by, by working off of what's familiar, because if he jumped off into another world, we wouldn't, you know, it'd be lost. But where he's going is universal, timeless. Um, I can't imagine sequence there. I, it's just so hard for me to imagine a here that is unchanging. And it's, it's going to get more mysterious as we go. I, 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 want to, I want to end with one passage tonight that's going to be even, it's, it's just going to reinforce all that I've been saying up to this point. It's a beautiful passage, but anyway, any questions or comments or Melody? Are you here? Okay, um, so <laughs> last week I brought up my concern that it felt like only the best and brightest were in heaven and the, the rest of us, the rest of me were out of luck. But when, you know, I heard you and Suzanne talking about it, I reread passages and I had been look, I figured out I'd been looking at it like a person and seeing the lights, seeing the individual lights. And when I reread it, thinking about what you had said, I, I focused more on the warmth of all these lights coming together and surrounding you. So I, I came out of the person, the way a person would look at it and be looked at it more spiritually. And I do now that I'm in heaven, I'm feeling the warmth surrounding me. So it really did what you said really, really changed the way that I looked at the, the passages. So yeah. I'm a lot warmer now than I was last week. <laughs> I'm glad to be in your heat, surrounded by your warmth. Um, I, I would just ask, you know, don't ever lose that sense of personhood because there is no warmth without it. I, I mean, we're not Buddhists. We're not, you know, we're not in the personhood. Let me put it differently. Christ, God is a person. He's God. He said, he named himself. I am that am. The other two persons of the Trinity are persons being made in his image. We, each one of us is a unique individual. Wait, in fact, let me make this distinction. Um, <clears throat> personhood is distinct from individualism. Every oak tree is an individual. Does every oak tree have an eye? Can an oak tree say I? Can an oak tree spiritualize? Talk, you know, grasp what you're just describing, Melody. You know, the sense of inwardness that you take it in and your sense of otherness with others, it becomes a part of you. Can, you, can an individual eucalyptus do that? Can an individual bear, porpoise, gorilla? No, they can't. They don't have a sense of a spiritual, a rational soul. So 
personhood is at the essence of who we are as humans, and it's lost in the modern world. In fact, one of the sad things about me, I mean, going to Mike's, you know, it's obviously weighing on you, Mike, is that people grow up today feeling individual. They have to make themselves individualistic, stand out, but they're isolated as individuals. A person can't be a person. To be a person means saying I and being received, being in communion with somebody else. We were made to be loved and be loved, not remain. Can two eucalyptus trees love each other? I'm sorry. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm making this too ridiculous, but I'm trying to make a point. There's an important distinction between being an individual and a person, and we've lost that. And I'm I'm probably making too much of your comment, but I just don't. I, you know, your personhood is so valuable, Melody, and um, you don't want to set those in opposition to each other. What you're describing are one, you know. Well, I guess um, I understand what you're saying. I, I don't feel like I lost my personhood. It is like when you're in mass and you're an individual, but you're all a group worshiping together. Another example would be uh, my husband and I did a Black Lives Matter march last summer. And although there were a bunch of individuals, we all came together to say this is important to us. So that's kind of what I feel like when I go to heaven and I read what Dante says. It's not those individual lights that are shining brightly. It's that they're all coming together and making a point together. So, um, like you feel when you're in mass and you're all worshiping the same God and the same, you know, not in the same way, but in the same way. Yeah. So, I just want to hold on to each one of those persons who are involved in that communion are persons, unique, distinct persons. Um, here, let's go on because let's. So those are. That's just an overview again of the world that we're in, and it's important. For to hold on to because I think it will help with our reading because Dante's taking in uh, we're in, in a world that's so different from the Inferno and the Purgatorio um, these are divine mysteries and the beautiful thing about what Dante's done is he works off of what's natural not abstractions in his head so we can begin with what's familiar to us what's real with us and know that that's the basis of entering into something else it's not alien. Christ took on our nature. If anything, he affirmed it. He didn't darken it or blacken it. Or Here, let's go back to the, um, the, the question that Dante raised about um, baptism and, um, and the response of the, of the eagle. Um, remember on... Page 504, um, Dante was being warned to be careful of making judgments prematurely because humans can, um, can hold God in ransom. They can be angry at him. They can hold him accountable to their standards. <laughs> as if, as, you know, it's, it's like restricting God or bringing him down to fit us instead of humbling ourselves and acknowledging that he's so far beyond anything we could ever know. On 504, um, he makes that point. So he says, therefore, our vision, which can only be one of the rays that come from that prime mind, which penetrates every created thing, cannot of its own nature be so weak as not to see 
that its own principle is far beyond what our eyes can perceive. Um, and then he goes on, and so the vision granted to your world can no more fathom justice everlasting than eyes can see down to the ocean floor. We have to be careful of the judgments we make about each other because we, we so often think we've got it right. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm hoping that our reading of Boethius chased that away from everybody because Boethius made it clear um, that unless we stand with God, we, we too often blind ourselves and see in the world's terms and miss a lot. And so the vision granted to your world can no more fathom justice everlasting than eyes can see down to the ocean floor. While you can see the bottom near the shore, because right near the shoreline, you know you can see the shoreline underneath the water, you cannot out at sea, but nonetheless it's still there, concealed by depths too deep. Mystery means there's always more to be known. The beauty of works like this is that it helps us penetrate those mysteries. Dante is showing what a great gift reason is with faith. That in this world that op it opens to us faith, reason can help us to see things and understand them, bring to our world. If you're in a Protestant world, a fundamentalist world that denies the value of reason, that only grace can do something, reason's corrupt, think about the mysteries cut off to that person. There's just so much he won't see. Because everything Beatrice is showing him, showing us, is through powers of reason, or this book wouldn't exist. You'd have nothing to tell us because it, it could be accommodated to reason. Um, here, we got to the, the five figures in the eyes, and I left you with this question on page 510. Trajan was one of them. He was an emperor. Um, and Riffius on page 511, who in your earring world would have believed that Riffius of Troy was here the fifth is its half circle made of holy lines. So here at the level of Jupiter, one of the highest levels so far, so it's, it's representing a, a, a more luminous, a richer depth of light than say was possible at the moon with Constance and Picarda. These are fuller, richer. So these are two pagans. So Dante, Dante's answering these people who say, who, who's this God anyway, the pagans who lived before Christ, are not going to go to heaven? And the, the unbaptized are not going to be there? Those are serious criticisms of the church. What's Dante's answer? And by the way, Dante's answer is orthodox. This is our church. What's his answer? This partly goes to Virgil. I think I don't know if I, I hinted at that, but I think some of you had questions about Virgil. It just seems to me Dante's not going to take this Virgil question on here, but I, I can't read this passage without thinking about Virgil. But what's, what, what is Dante revealing to us here in these two figures, Trajan and Riffius? What's he showing about, what's he showing about God's justice and mercy? This is our church. This is absolutely orthodox. Well, perhaps that the uh, the three Christian virtues can exist outside of Christianity. So perhaps there, there are the if uh, these evidently were two uh, well one 
<clears throat> one was pre-Christian. Uh, uh, Riffius was pre-Christian, but uh, Trajan wasn't necessarily a Christian, but uh, certainly lived among Christians, at, at least even if they were being persecuted. But, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, they they they. Uh, displayed the virtues in in spite of the fact that they didn't profess uh, faith in Christ. One of the things that Dante's showing us is that (laughs) I'm going to be blunt, what he's saying, particularly to Christians, is knock off this judgmental attitude. That there are some things you're not going to understand about God's justice, but what you can count on is it's going to be real and merciful. I want to go back to this point about the Trinity because it really it really upsets me in our time. Pardon me if I get off on this for a second. The tendency in the modern world is to treat um, the Old Testament and New Testament as if it belonged to two different gods. There's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God, right? I, I'm trusting that what I said about the Trinity should knock that out. There's only one God whatever Christ showed in the way of mercy was already present or his, in his Father, or the Father would have not said, he gave his own, or how did he put it? Um, he sent his only begotten Son to atone. That was an expression of the Father's mercy. Could there have been anything in the Father that did, could there be anything at Christ as the second person that didn't already exist in his Father? Any love, mercy. No, but the modern world tends to just divide that horribly. What Christ did was take his father's love. He said, the father sent his only begotten son to, um, to show a mercy and make it real by doing the one thing that nobody else could do. We, did, we looked at this in Canto 5 in the Perdiso. If you look at the nature assumed, no act was more just. It, the atonement could only happen with somebody who was a god and a man. One or the other wouldn't have done it, right? So whatever we see in Christ was already there in the Father, but he made it real by taking on our human nature because no other act of atonement would have answered the the original injustice against the Father. So Christ is only revealing something already there. Is anybody going to suppose that Christ went back and he's somehow superior to his Father in love or mercy? It's one God. But the modern mind has horribly divided those. Um, it's Aryan. Um, it's, it's, um, Christ over and over said, in me you see the Father. Um, there to, he's doing his Father's will. So part of what Dante's doing here is showing that there are some things that are incomprehensible, but one of the things we should know, not have a question about, is that God's mercy is infinite. Whatever his justice is, look at what he did with his son. Whatever Abraham did, God the Father did a million times over with his own son. He sent his only son for us. So Dante, what he's doing is, I think, answering the the tendency in us as human beings to get self-righteous about what we know when there's some things we can't know very well. Let me just shed a little bit of light on the Trajan Riffius thing. The Riffius thing to me is comic. The story behind Trajan is that um, Gregory, Pope Gregory, this is the, I don't, 
this is a tradition. You know, I, I don't know what to say about it other than that, but it's longstanding. Pope Gregory so loved the pre-Christian men, some of them, he thought they were so close to God that he did not want them damned. He prayed to God constantly. And the, the tradition is that, he, that his prayers brought Trajan back to life and he was baptized. So once again, it's the power of prayer that people have enough faith to do that when everybody else would say, stupid? How ridiculous. We're going to come to this in a minute because to me, it's, 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 in one sense, it's almost the center of this whole work. I'm going to get to it in one page. Um, but the, the tradition was the Trajan so loved those men. I, so I, I don't want to take a lot of time. Where do you think Virgil fits in this? <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to go there. It has forever been hard for me to see. Dante allegorically has got to show us that kind of reason is locked and it can't go farther. Remember, the, vir the virtuous pagans were not being punished. They were in that dim light because they were without faith, hope, and charity. But they weren't being punished. They were good men. But I read this and I think, is nobody going to pray for Virgil? I don't believe that. I just do not. Virgil, St. Augustine loved Virgil. He cried every time he read the Aeneid. St. Augustine. I can't believe he didn't pray for Virgil. Cannot. He loved the man. So do I. So do I. So on the one hand, Dante's showing us that there's something um, beyond our understanding. But he's also treating a character that he knows has a history that I just gave. That Gregory loved him so much that he prayed for him. And the story was that he was returned and a miracle took place and he was baptized. Here's Riffius. I wanted you to, I read this line last time, and I just want to take a minute with this because I think what Dante's doing is, is really good. In book two of the Aeneid, remember, Aeneas is at Dido's court describing the fall, the destruction of Troy, and all that happened afterwards. And in that um, stage of the fall, he's describing those um, Trojans that took on Greek uniforms to disguise themselves and then were discovered, remember? And then they were butchered, most of them killed. And some whom we had taken by surprise under cover of night throughout the city and driven off came back again. They knew our shields and arms for liars now, our speech alien to their own. They overwhelmed us. Corobius fell at the, um, at the warrior goddess altar, killed by Penelaus, and Riphius fell. Here's the line I wanna, and Riphius fell. Riffius isn't a name known to tradition. You'd have to know Virgil to know this name. I know it because I've been, you know, teaching this literature forever. So Riffius is, I, I just love what Dante does with him. Riffius has no notoriety or fame or place in history, but Dante's got this, or this is Virgil. This is Dante taking his past. Remember what the principle, carrying the past forward and redeeming it as we go. That's the fundamental work of the epic, to carry the past forward, to redeem it as we go. I believe that's a description of our life. Every, every one of us should be living that, carrying, carrying our past forward, carrying our sins, and doing away with them as we go. That means even if you have 14, 13 siblings, <laughs> God, 
Connie, it wears me out just thinking. <laughs> God. Anyway, carrying the past forward and redeeming it as you go. Here's the line in Virgil. And Riffius fell, a man uniquely just among the Trojans, the soul of equity, but the gods would have it otherwise. So even though he was just, unparalleled in, in goodness, the gods thought otherwise, so he's in hell. So what's Dante doing here? This is so comic. It's just wonderful. Did everybody get that line? Riffius fell, a man uniquely just among the Trojans. He was a virtuous man, the soul of equity, but the gods would have it differently. He died and went to the underworld. What's Dante doing with, with Virgil here? With, with this pagan? This guy lived 1,200 years before Christ. Remember, he was in the Trojan War. So what's Dante doing? <clears throat> what's Dante saying? I love I this. I guess he's saying with God, nothing is impossible. So don't make your judgments. Um, God sees the human heart and, and knows what it's capable of. Yeah. Remember that line in Virgil, the gods thought otherwise. What Dante's saying is, the God thought otherwise. <laughs> he's playing with Virgil. I mean, he's just, he's taking, is everybody following? You know, he loved Virgil, and he's taking Riffius. And, but it's a way of illustrating the point here, that God's mercy and justice goes so far beyond our, our powers of comprehension. So we need to be careful. We have to be careful of the judgments we make. Dante's not saying don't don't make judgments because you know he's making them all the time. But what he is saying is do everything you can to make your judgments in accord with God. If you're making your judgments in accord with men politically who'd see things at that level, be very, very careful. Very careful. Family, we talked about the warnings, the difficulties with families, politics. Those are the two grave dangers for human beings. Did you have something? Did, were you going to say something, Um Okay, here, this is where I wanted to go with this whole question of the way we stand to God and his justice. Because remember, we're at the heaven of Jupiter, the, the level of justice. And what we're learning right here, right now, is that God's mercy um, doesn't limit his justice. Whatever... Whatever in the way just whatever in the way he enacts justice, he's always carrying something more, even if we don't see it. On five twelve, um, I see do you believe these things are true because I say them, but you don't see how, thus though they are believed, the truth is hid. You still don't see the truth of things. You do see as one apprehends a thing by name, but cannot explain its quiddity, its essence, its real meaning. Regnum silorum suffereth violence, gladly from fervent love, from vibrant hope. Only these powers can defeat God's will, not in the way one man conquers another, for that will wills its own defeat, and so defeated it defeats through its own mercy. He's talking about the presence of those in the eye of the eagle. That line, Regnum Solarum, comes from Matthew, 
from the days of John the Baptist until now. So here, you guys, we've got two pagans, among other, you know, what Dante's showing us is they're pagans, they're unbaptized, you know, they're men that some people wouldn't assume would make it to heaven, but they're there. Um, and then he gives this regnum salarum, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence gladly from fervent love, from vibrant hope, only these powers can defeat God's will, not in the way one man conquers another, for that will wills its own defeat, and so defeated it defeats through its own mercy. This is the line from Matthew, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent bear it away. What is the meaning of that passage from Matthew? Because it's here in the center of this canto on God's justice and mercy. What's the meaning of that passage? Maria. Hi. It's, you came on and I missed you, but I, um, I'm actually glad. I mean, sometimes I'm having fun with you, you know, and I've got... Cause I, I know. <laughs> you always have fun with me. <laughs> no, I know. I, well, I try. I, actually, I do with everybody. I mean, every, everybody should know that. If, if anybody gives me an opening, I'm going to jump on it. And even if you don't give me an opening, I'm going to jump on it. But I'm asking this seriously of you because I know, I mean, you've, you, some of your insights on theological things have been so good, and I think this is a particularly difficult... What do you make of that passage, Maria? Do you, it's, it's not an easy passage. Let me read it, let me read it again. Yeah. From the days of John the Baptist, this is Matthew eleven twelve. For anybody who wants Matthew eleven twelve. <clears throat> From the days of John the Baptist until now. Remember, John was beheaded. Beheaded. And he was the one who baptized Christ. So he's the one he makes the call to repentance. It's it's like he and Christ overlap because Christ's first call is to everybody to repent. That's from Christ. So he's saying to everybody, and you know that, that Christ makes lots of injunctions. He, he says, believe, but he also says, unless you die, pick up your cross, follow me, you know, all these things. He keeps giving these parables where he sends people into hell. The wedding guests who, you know, is dressed improperly. And so Christ is not, a, <laughs> by the world's terms, he doesn't seem to be a nice guy in those scenes. I mean, he, get, he can be, be very severe. But we've got this passage from Matthew. From the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent bear it away. What does that mean? Because it's right here in the middle of this canto that we're reading right now, dealing with God's justice and mercy. It says that the violence wear it away. I, I didn't hear that word. The, the violent bear it away. Bear it away. Bear it, carry it. They bear it with them. They carry it with them. Take it away. From the days mm -hmm. of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent bear it away. Yeah, it, like it's part of the cross maybe like how um as christians we we have to to wear that that cross and 
sometimes like through violence too like there is a strength that comes from that and like the church was born on like violent acts like persecuted and like it flourished through through that violence mm -hmm. like the, the martyrs right the seeds of the church and yeah 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 so um, yeah, that's the only thing I can think of. No, it's good. Anybody else? Anybody? Come on, I know your minds are turning on this because it's... Anne, do you have a thought? Actually, what she said was very much in line with what I was thinking, so... Mm -hmm. yeah. Karen, Bob, do you you guys have a thought on this? I don't have much to add there. I'm sorry. No, no, don't be. It's I I think it's a. Does it have to do with our the way we judge people? Like you're talking about the way we you know we put people in hell real quickly, like, but those people. Um, clearly can be in heaven, you know, which is why we shouldn't judge. You know, I'm just thinking of that violence part in heaven. I, I don't know, I can't really come up with anything. Yeah. Melody, you got a thought? Well, so, from what I understand with Dante, God willed his own defeat on the cross because by willing that defeat by his death he saved us so in the same way with that that statement the kingdom of heaven suffers violence willingly letting the violent um, do their thing so that uh, we can be saved um, by doing the opposite sorry doc go ahead it seems to well, be wait, wait, let me ask. So, because I, I think, I, I mean, I enjoy the way you put that. So when Joan of Arc killed people, was she damning herself? Was she doing the opposite of what you're talking about? There are martyrs, there are martyrs who are, um, who may be committing crimes in, in the world's terms, when in fact they're performing God's will, um, does doing his will always mean being passive and not doing anything? I think that's the question that I want to put to you the way you put it. Is Joan of Arc then, is, 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 um, have we misjudged her by making her a saint when we should see her as a matter of fact of doing the opposite of what you're describing and so is damned? Let me just say that I did research after class last week to look at what people thought this meant. Yeah. And there were a lot of different ideas. Yeah, about I know, it. I know. There was know. nothing conclusive. So it was a really tough problem. Thanks, Doc. Um, but um, I, you know. That's I the first time I've heard anything I, contrary from you. I, after all the good that I said about you last week. <laughs> It just made me think too hard. <laughs> no, um, I, I mean, the way you put it, obviously there are times when we have to stand up and there are times when we have to sit back. Um, going with what Dante said, 
Jesus, you know, basically willed his death to save us, but but that can't always be the truth. We we have to stand up sometimes. So in conclusion, there is no conclusion to this. No, it's no. very difficult. <laughs> so so the Bible is making no sense here. It's just leaving us with a mess. Michael, where are you on this? By, by the way, what Melody is saying, just so you know, and by the, I think the conventional reading is, the conventional reading is, um, you, you know, the, the, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that our understanding of heaven is that not even hell can withstand. I, I think people misread that statement, and the gates of hell will not prevail. You know, gates cannot withstand God's love if he wanted to prevail. So he is always willing the good of another. Um, but this passage typically is read this way. People say that people commit violence against the kingdom and the violent, it's like they take a part of the kingdom away with them. You know, they're trying to attack evil and so they're bearing it apart. That's often the conventional way this is understood. And I think that's an apt, I'm not in the dark about this. I'm going to say that is absolutely not consistent with what Christ is saying here. So, Mike, did you have a thought on this? I've been quite mystified about this passage after after hearing it last week, and that first uh, that first uh, interpretation that you just voiced was very unsatisfying to me because it sounds as if the kingdom of God is defeated if the violent uh, uh, commit violence and then carry away the kingdom as if it were a spoils of war or something. I can't. I can't abide by that. So I mean, it, I'm, I'm think, beginning to think that uh, those who do violence, the violent, are, I am violent. Anytime I commit sin, uh, then I'm committing a violence against the kingdom. And if if I bear it away, then perhaps. Just throwing this out there, perhaps I'm bearing away God's mercy. I don't know. That's <laughs> that's where I am on it at the moment. I hope I hope I hope I didn't mislead him, but you're confusing me because I was giving that example as a bad reading of it. You know that you can't. The kingdom's not um, vulnerable. There's no way anybody can attack it violently and carry parts of it away. It's invulnerable. So for people to read it that way, to me, is to entirely miss the meaning of it. It's got to be, in some sense, the opposite of that. Can we understand? Is everybody clear in that? Violent pe people do violence against the kingdom. We crucified God. Has there ever been an act? Is there, let me be really Has there ever been an act that will, that will compare to that act in violence? We, we can talk about murders and political oppressions we can go on forever no act no violent we ever commit will ever get close to the violence of that act we disobeyed god that's our original injustice christ atoned for it by doing all we've seen we put christ on a cross and yet this extraordinary love came out of it <clears throat> so i don't think the reason is i mean i don't think the i don't think the meaning is that violent people carry the kingdom away. The kingdom is invulnerable. Dante's put this really beautifully. Regnum Solarum suffers violence, gladly from fervent love, from vibrant hope. It suffers those 
Only these powers can defeat God's will. Not in the way one man conquers another, but in this other way. So, any other thoughts? By the way, that's, I think I told you that's the title of Flannery O'Connor's novel. I think it's why it's such... It's, I, I, <laughs> um, Chaucer's next Shakespeare... I, I want to so badly get to the vinyl beard away with you guys. I just would love to read that novel with you guys. But anyway... Any other thoughts? I think what I my my description of it would be anybody who does something in the love of God is going to carry the kingdom with him against the world. Let me try to make this clear. Um, does the world, if you read Dostoevsky or Flannery O'Connor, does the world who denies Christ is that world kind to Christians? Does it make a place for them? Isn't the ordinary response of the world and has been from the beginning if it denies God to be violent? Just as violent. Put, we put Christ on a cross. We martyrs die all the time. So there's a violence that's committed against those who make Christ's love present by what they do. They can do it quietly the way St. Francis did it. They can do it the way Joan of Arc did it. It's not, we can't, we can't accommodate that meeting to the world's standards because the world's always going to get it wrong. So Jane, Jane of, Joan of Arc, who slashed off heads, or Henry V, Louis, Louis, who's one of the great, probably the greatest king that ever lived. And a saint. Uh-huh. And a saint. And a saint, yeah. That there are um, people in war who receive a Medal of Honor. You know, Joan of Arc was made a saint. Um, I, I think what, what this passage does is make us aware of being once again careful of the judgments we make because we can side too easily with the world and the black-white judgments it makes, thinking we're with Christ, making these judgments about these politically, familial, domestically, because sometimes the things that people do are hard. I, I know of families, I don't want to go into them. I know of a deacon um, whose son was in a homosexual marriage. He, couldn't, he did not show up the, at the wedding. That would have been seen as an act of violence by his family. There are stands sometimes that the family has to take. What are the rest of the members going to do? They're going to look at it as a wrong. that they're being. Christ is really clear. If you make your family more important than me, am I getting home on this? That there are, there are times when the, the, the love that you bear for Christ puts you in a position where the world is going to hate you, even those you think will love you. People in that position, whether it's St. Francis or Joan of Arc, carry the kingdom with them. They're carrying love um, in an act that seems violent to the world because the, the world opposes it. And it will cover all the ranges. That's why, that's why, Melody, I wanted to come in on that, you know, because I thought your description was really good. But it, be careful, because if you leave somebody like Joan of Arc out, then you're approaching something Buddhist. Because we say, we say, I mean, you said it, you just said it a minute, there are times when you have to take a stand. The question is, do you take it in the wrong, are you doing it for your own pride, family, race, sex, 
Or are you doing it in love of God? If you do it in love of God, the world is not going to like you. Whatever you read, however they see it. But you're bearing the kingdom. I think that's the meaning of this passage. And it's terribly, terribly difficult. Because it, it comes up against the way the world tends to look at violence. Because the world wants to make everything nice. He wants to do away with Christ because Christ made things very, very difficult. Let me stop there. Is that clear or any questions about or anybody want to add anything to it? Maria, what's your response? Did that help or no? Yeah, that, that helps. Um, yeah, it, it, it is a little bit um, sometimes difficult to understand that, that violence in the, in the name of like by God's will. Um, and there are like certain things that happen like in the Old Testament, right? Like sometimes like God will say like you have to kill um, these yep. people. They did this like very harsh and yep, yep, yep. had to be done. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, yep. Good for you. Yep. You know, we've been dealing with this question of pity since the Iliad and we talked about it a lot in the, the uh, Inferno. The dangers of pity for us. Um, pity and love are two very, very different things even though they seem the same. Um, any, any other thoughts about this or questions? It's a, it, I think Donnie's, the fact that he put it here where he did is so amazing to me um, because it, it, it's, it's at this canto where he's dealing with God's justice and mercy both. Sometimes from the world's point of view, God's justice can seem harsh or severe. Christ was very severe. It bothers me when people try to want to make him into a buddy. And he's got all those parables. Well, wait, we, remember the parable where the, he sent the guy into, into, into prison to, until he paid the last farthing. He sent another guy into the fires. Um, in a number of the parables, he's not doing what the world thinks should be nice. Pretty severe. And yet, it was his mercy and his justice that redeemed us. And I've said this over and over again, it's that I think the great challenge for us in our faith is we have to bring justice and mercy together, not one or the other. A justice without mercy is inhuman. A mercy without a justice that isn't rooted in a justice is a disaster, it's enabling. So we've been struggling with this, the difference between pity and love and Justice and mercy, it's been right at the heart of a lot of what we've been doing. Let me stop. Any, any questions? Mike, did that help at all? It, um, you you look like you still have questions. Did you? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, that, I guess that makes a little more sense than, I, I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm very clear on, on the... Uh, I'm just a little unclear about the bearing away part. Yep. Um, let me give another example. It's from Flannery O'Connor's. It's a she doesn't. She makes it even harder because of the way she presents things. But um, the story is about um, this old prophet figure who has a great nephew and whom he's preparing to become a prophet himself. It's very much about baptism. 
And one of the boys that he tried saving when he was young took to the old man and loved him dearly. His father came and took him away and raised him under standards of the modern world. It's like taking him into Plato's cave. And he bought into all these things and believed that um, the world could make you better, could make you normal, the world could do the world could be your savior. So you've got the world being a savior in one instance and Christ being the savior. And the two things are set against each other and there's no way they're going to come together. There's no way they can't. Because one of them is denying God and the other one is saying, you can't do without God. But you know that everything Christ asks of us puts us at risk with the world. The world is going to look at us as violent. We don't get along or you know something. Anyway, there's this one passage in which he's talking about Herod um, killing the innocents. Remember? He missed Christ and he killed all those. I think it's impossible to read that without thinking that's an, that was an, an act of violence on the part of the world, but the kids who were killed bear away the kingdom. They carry the kingdom with them. Herod's violent could not stop that, even though he was after Christ. So Christ was at the center of that. He was the cause of the violence in one sense. And the people who had to suffer it bored away. That's true. That's as true of Joan of Arc as it is of Peter or Francis or, you know. I don't know if that makes it any more clear or confuses, but let's, any, any more? Um, yeah. Go, yeah. Um, I have a question. So, I I can I can see like how violence like um, may be fruitful, but like what about when when violence is not towards someone who has faith and makes it fruitful, uh, and maybe like grows more violence? Can you say it again, um, Maria, and flesh it out? So if somebody does what? Some like what about like violence? So I can see like how violence, when it's like against a, a just person or like a faithful person, can transform that violence and make it fruitful for the good. But what about like when it's like violence against someone who may not believe and like, or may have more hate grown in them? Because so it's not um, transforming that violence; it's like multiplying it. Right. No, it's a good question. I mean, to, to me, it's such a difficult thing because we're always, in, in a discussion like this, we're always at a level of abstraction. I mean, only God can see the interior of either side of those people that you're talking about. Um, one of the major themes of Flannery O'Connor's work is that violence is an occasion for grace, that, that very often, um, I mean, you put it well a minute ago, um, one of, the, one of the things, one of the beauties of her work is that she, she keeps showing people who go along with the world. But their passivity helps bring on problems because they're not doing God's will, they're being comfortable. And they reach a point of violence and something happens and she tends to leave her stories there because for her it's a moment of choice. What happens then depends on what you do with that violence, what's in your heart, and how many of us can judge that well. That's why, you know, we, what Dante's dealing with here, and it went to Connie's comment earlier, that um, 
you know, what's at stake here so often is the kind of judgments that we make or don't make, and sometimes the violence that can come out of them. Um, let's, I mean, let me take an abstraction of a, of a minister whose son um, invited him to a marriage that was a homosexual marriage, and he didn't go. That act would have seemed like a violence to lots of people. Would have shown how bad, he, bigoted, intolerant, unaccepting, lacking compassion. They would have seen it as a violent act. How do you judge what's in the soul of a person? That's that's a hard thing. I, I myself sympathize with the 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 um, deacon because I think homosexuality is a wrong, but what we do with that wrong is that we saw, remember, in the purgatory we saw, or inferno, um, homosexuals were at one level. In the purgatory, they were at the top of purgatory close to love, undergoing penance. They were ready to fill their penance. Are we capable of making those judgments where a person is based on what he's doing? Our belief is that some people put themselves at risk of damnation. You know, we've, we've been on the border of this all along. What do we do there? All the martyrs died dealing with those problems. That's, that's why they were martyred. So, so much of this depends on how you read the human soul, Maria. It's, to me, it's just so hard. Um, I, I can only, I, I'm a, I'm, I hope I'm not wandering here, that, but um, for, for myself, just I'm speaking personally for myself and my own thinking about this, because you know how much I love the Iliad. We, we've done the Iliad together. I think it's extraordinary work. It's, it's war. People are killing each other right and left. When I think about gangs, or I think about war in which men are killing each other, there's not a question in my mind that God is present on a battlefield or in a gang. Now, what's he doing with gang members who are butchering? Are they all going to go to hell? I mean, I think lots of them are awful, awful human beings. Are there some who are savable? Remember in the purgatory, we saw all, we saw all these figures in anti-purgatory um, who just barely escaped damnation. Um, I don't know if I'm muddying the waters here. It's, a, it's just a way of saying we have to be careful because it's so easy to make judgments along the lines that the world does. And so often we'll be making, we may be making mistakes. Are our judgments in accord with God or not? If somebody's persecuting us, are we standing up, but in the right way? Are there, are there times when we may have to go to a cross? And who knows what that means? I believe Joan of Arc went to a, a cross. She was a soldier. And I believe Francis, he had the stigmata. He went to a cross. You've got two figures who, in some sense, are standing in opposition to each other. And yet they're both one with Christ. So... The verse doesn't make a general statement about Say, start over. The verse. Yeah. Can you hear Suzanne? Go ahead, Doug. The verse doesn't make a general statement about all violence. What it says is that there are examples. There are people who do violence out of love and, as Dante says, out of hope to the kingdom. 
and they bear away. So it that can be. So Riffius, Trajan, other people. Um, it's possible that, that can happen. So what can happen to it? That violent acts done out of love for God, and I wouldn't put the Crusades in there, um, but genuine love for God um, are going to carry the kingdom with them. Yeah. So it's not making a blanket statement about all violence. You don't have to look at every violent act, every murder, every robbery, every whatever, every rape, whatever. You don't have to look at that and say, is this a virtuous person underneath? You, you don't have to. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't read it that way. I read it as making a, a very firm general, it's setting out a principle. The principle is, pretty clearly, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence under these conditions, from fervent love, from vibrant hope, only those powers can defeat God's will, not in the way one man conquers another. Let me go. Who was the woman in the Old Testament? Was she? Was did she herself chop the guy's head off, or did what she do lead to the beheading of that guy? Who was that figure? Judas. Huh? Judas. Judas. Was I don't remember. Do you guys remember who I'm talking about? Do you think she's in hell? The guy was evil, certainly evil. I don't, I'm not trying to make a commitment to push people here. What I'm trying to do is open up a passage in Dante that I think is appropriate for this point because it's dealing with God's justice and mercy and the point of it is that lots of these things are beyond our comprehension. But we do have examples in the church of opposites and what I'm trying to do is hold both of them there so that everybody's clear that this is a principle. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence when people do this. You know, whether it's they themselves who are committing, Joan of Arc, or passively suffering like a martyr. Because in all those instances of violence is being done. That's the whole point. But where does it put you with respect to this question of God and the love that you bear him? Let me leave it here because I, I don't think I'm going to answer everybody's questions, but I, at, at this point, one of the things that Dante is showing us is the danger of coming too quickly to judgments because Trajan, who was not Christian, and Riffius, who lived 1,200 years before Christ, are both there. What Dante's showing us is that God's justice will never not be done, never. His justice is an order of the world. He's at the commandments. He's um, over and over and over again. We hear in the masses, those who love God will follow. Saint John in his letter, those who, how do you know God's love, or how do you know our love for Him? By whether or not we follow His commandments. Those are his explicit words. Um, but, but we also know that from everything we know from Christ that God offered this divine mercy that was far beyond anything we could do. And that's what we're called to do, to be with Christ, to fulfill the law, bringing a mercy that can only come at, 
at the cost of a cross, however we do it, whether it's Joan of Arc or... I think the danger in our age is that we, we, we look at um, love as if it's passive. You know, and I, I, think that's a, I think that's a purely Protestant phenomenon. Meekness and, you know, Christ, Christ... I don't hear Christ being meek when he says to the devils, get out. Or when he sends the guy into hell or, you know, all the other severe things that he does. Um, that's God calling us to love the way he did. To, 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 to try to be just and bring a mercy to what we do. Let me leave it there because it, it's a it's it the part of the point of the or the major point of the canto it seems to me is is to be careful of our judgments because we know that God knows far more than we do. But you you know that Dante's been trying to speak the truth of things. In fact, let me go back here. This will put it put even better. Why is the level of Mars above the level of the Sun? Remember in the level of the sun we saw the two orders, the Franciscan and the Dominicans come together complimenting each other? They were the doctors of the church. In the next level, at the level of Mars, Dante will meet Cacioguida and the warriors. They're warriors. They were in war. Why does he put them higher than St. Thomas and Bonaventure? They're high. They're warriors. There's a tendency in the modern world, Buddhist and Protestant, to look at love as if it's passive. You just suffer. That, you, that there is no justice to struggle to realize. Why did Dante put the Mars, the warriors, above St. Thomas, who's a doctor of the church? Why? Why? Boy, are we in nitty-gritty ground here. Melody, you got an answer? You look like you're... Because they put their lives on the line for what they believed in. So love wasn't just um, sitting back and writing something. It was actually putting their lives on the line. Yeah, they spilled their blood. I mean, they gave up. They gave, they gave their lives. So it just... And, and I... You know, I mean, think about the martyrs or whoever, whether whether you're martyred or whether you're at war or the wonderful thing about our church is that it just does not let us slip into black white ways of judging. The church does everything it can to help us know that we live in mysteries, that we're asked to act, to do things, to be warriors, to be writers, to be theologians, that all of us have different callings. Um, the church isn't saying there's only one way to do things, or you know, it's the saint. The saints are all so different. Um, anyway, let's let's go on. Okay, let's. Um, we're. Um, Can I just ask one thing? Sure. I'm wondering if maybe we're misinterpreting suffer. Maybe it's like in suffer the little children to come unto me, where we're talking about allowing. Maybe we're talking about God allowing violence when it can lead to these better things. I, I think that's good, Anne. 
I wouldn't put them, I wouldn't make them exclusives, but I, I think both of those fit. I think that's an absolutely good reading of the passage. It seems to me it includes both. I mean, that's why I was using the Herod thing, that mm-hmm. the kids didn't do anything, but they, and sometimes martyrs aren't committing violence, you know, they're, um, but things happen to people um, because of the violence people enact on them. And um, how, what was your word? I'm sorry, how did you put it again? Allow. Allow, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, it's a good way to describe Christ, you know, when he's allowing Pilate and, and Herod to do what they do. He didn't speak. He didn't speak. Um, and we know, from the, uh, we know from the temptations in the desert when Satan tempts him. You know, I, I, I really wish we could do um, the Brothers Karamazov together. In one of the temptations, Christ makes it clear, if, if he needed to, he could call, call on all the angels to save him. The angels would, this is God. <laughs> you know, he, he had to face that. He didn't do that. He, he denied that. But, I mean, is there any way to understand that scene, that the scene at the trial is a travesty of justice? It's an absolute travesty, unless we make sense of it the way Dante did. If you look at the nature assumed, it was a just act. Christ had to allow it to fulfill that justice. But he's God. He could have called on the angels. He didn't. Um, because if he didn't, he would not have fulfilled justice. That was one part of what he had to do. Wow, this is heavy. Okay, quick. Uh, let me let me get to um, in the next couple of episodes. Um, Dante is he he they go to Saturn. I, I I didn't know that this would take this long. I'm really glad for the discussion because I think it's a hard hard. I think it's hard for us. That's why it's so hard. Um, he enters the the um, heaven of Saturn and and things happen there that I want to, the beauty and the exchanges between him and um, and Beatrice are amazing. He'll meet Peter Damien and then after that he'll meet Benedict who is the founder of the monastic orders in the West. They're, they're really wonderful scenes. The, the two things that I wanted to get to tonight I'm just going to touch on and and read them, and then I, I think what I'm going to do is leave them for you guys again to. Um, if you if you go over to page 545, you'll see Dante has has um, passed through the heavens to the um, constellation of Gemini, which is appropriate because that's the constellation under which he is born. So once again, we're seeing Dante return to origin. He's really clear in this. He's going back. He's going home. Cacciaguida, Gemini, his place of baptism. And then in Canto 26, on page 544, he, he meets Adam, his father. And he have these four questions. So Dante can't be clear. He's going home. And going home means encountering who we are from our past. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go back and pick that up next week because we're, we're getting too close to time. And I think what I'd like to do is just leave you with some questions. Page 550, Canto 27. 
they've come to the fixed stars and they're on the back of the universe and um, Dante looks back on page 550 um, with Beatrice's help and he's looking now at the entire universe now remember those descriptions in the Bible because they're and, and Shakespeare did ma amazing things with it we did we saw it in Anthony and Cleopatra I'll, I'll go back to it next week and we saw it in the top of purgatory when Dante meets Beatrice and he looks in his, her eyes and said every desire was satisfied but his desires were set on for more longing for more here he looks back at the entire universe top of 550 more of this puny threshing ground of ours I would have seen this is the um, what's the word contemptus mundi the contempt of the world it's this nothingness he's standing on the back of it and looking at the whole universe you've got to imagine that one day this will be true for you all hope for all of us I hope we have this moment I just genuinely hope to look back at the whole universe down at the bottom the nature of the universe which stills its center while it makes all else revolve moves from this heaven as from its starting point no other where thus than in the mind of God contains this heaven because in that mind burns the love that turns it and the power it reigns this is from Aristotle the prima mobile prima first mover prima mobile is the philosophic explanation for the motions of the heaven no modern scientist will come up with anything because they're too empiricist they'll, they'll do it in quantitative terms philosophically this is the principle there has to be a first mover where did where else did motion come from so this is the prima mobile outside it's like the rim of a circle um, boethius a circle <coughs> but where does this prima mobile exist where that in the mind of God contains this heaven because in that mind burns the love that turns it and the powers of <clears throat> this is God imparting his motion to the physical world as we know it <clears throat> so he looks back and he sees the entire universe but look on page 553 now he looks back and remember he's seen all the all the heavens okay from one perspective 553 just so do I remember doing that as I stood gazing at the lovely eyes those lures which love had used to capture me for when I turned around my eyes were met by what takes place here in this whirling sphere whenever anyone looks deep into it motion I saw a point that radiated light so piercing that the eyes it brightness strikes are forced to shut from sense intensity now I want to go back over this um, because I want to leave you to, if you guys would read over these cantos again. From one perspective, he looks back and he sees the material world as it exists materially. Okay? The prima mobile is in God's mind and it's moving and giving motion to all the other planets. At the center of it is the Earth, which is not moving, right? Because it's at the center of the Ptolemaic universe. When he looks at Beatrice's eyes and she's looking at it, he, he sees a spiritual vision because she's got her mind on God. And what he sees is exactly the reverse. That the center of the world, the universe, is a still point turning so fast it's still and it's imparting its motion to all the planets. 
So it's the intersection of those two things, to go back to what I said at the start. There is not a place in the world in which God does not exist doing something. This is T.S. Eliot's point. I'll, I'll go back to it. I'm going to read from T.S. Eliot when we meet again. But there's those two intersecting views, the material view with God outside of the universe and all the planets revolving until you get to the earth, which is still, or spiritual vision in which you see God at the center imparting motion to everything and he's still. Remember Boethius' circle image of that still point. The closer you are to that still point, the closer you are to seeing the world the way God does. The peace, the order, the justice, the mercy, all of it. So he's, he's coming to the back of the universe now, looking back and seeing this. I want to just, um, on Canto 29, um, Dante's got a question about whether or not angels have memory. It was a question the medievals struggled with because the medievals believed in angels in the way the modern world doesn't. But you can see that it would have been a serious question. Since they don't have bodies and they're not in time the way we are, do they have memories? Now I want to just leave you with this quote um, um, on, on page 567 because it really is a, 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 a beautiful line. Take a look at that line. Um, I'll read it and then I'm going to read a... Um, on 567... Dante and Beatrice have now entered the Imperium. They're with God. So remember now, we've graduated from... I'm going to go back over this. Right now I'm covering it quickly because we spent so much time on that um, Regnum Solorum question. But I, um, Stage by stage, we've been moving through the universe, entering a world of faith, learning about the mysteries of the kingdom. And now we've reached that point in the Imperium where we're with the Blessed, all in the presence of God. Now remember, all the souls that he's encountered are there. They've only come to him to slowly reveal these mysteries. Right? And the blessedness. Stages. Because in some sense, what Dante is showing us is what the mystics have all shown us. The, the union with God. The, the things that happen as we grow in our faith and approach God, the way it changes our vision. Is everybody okay? And at this point, Dante's got this question on his mind whether angels have memory, and now they've entered the Imperium, and they're looking at the rows, and the divisions between the Old Testament and New. Mary is at the heart of them, the Apostle, all the Old Testament figures, they're all there. It's an image of um, the beatific vision, beatitude. Um, and then Dante gives this description on page 567. They've entered the Imperium. Because remember, we've been talking about transubstantiation, indwelling, language, time and space, that something happens before Dante even knows it, and you know things like, and reflexive verbs. God is in Godding. Uh, you are in othering me, that um, we are empowering, in flowering. All those reflexive verbs shows that that this power that the human soul has to take things in, like the multiplication of the fishes, is infinitely multiplied in heaven. How could it not be? 
So wow. there's this extraordinary glory taking um, going on in each individual person. He's wow. himself while he's a part of everybody else. That's how extraordinary it is. Who's ever done that? I, I, I'm not aware of it. Page 567. And as a hillside rich in grass and flowers looks down into a lake as it were admiring the reflection of its wealth, so mirrored tier on tier within that light, more than a thousand reflected there, I saw all those of us who one return. And if the lowest tier alone can hold so great a brilliance, then how vast the space of this rose to its outer pezzles reach. And yet by such enormous breadth and height my eyes were not confused, they took in all a number and its quality of bliss. Imagine being in hell, in, in, in heaven, where the, where the numbers are countless, infinite. And yet somehow, the infinite doesn't overwhelm or confuse. How can it be otherwise? It's like luminous lights, each person. And then, he's, and then he has this description. And yet by such enormous breadth and height that my eyes were not confused, they took it all in, in number and in quality of bliss. There, near and far, nor adds nor takes away. For where God rules directly without agents, the laws of nature in no way apply. Here, I'm going to read another translation because I don't like that one. But let me read this one from another translation and then ask you what it means. In another translation, it reads, There, neither nearness nor distance added or took away. For where God governs immediately, Natural law has no relevance. What's that description say about heaven in the presence of God? There neither nearness nor distance added or took away. For where God governs immediately, natural law has no relevance. The law is of time and space as we know them? Describe that, any of you. What, what, what does, what, how is Dante describing heaven? There in that passage, how does it add to what we've been talking about? There, neither nearness nor distance added or took away. That is just stunning. For God governs immediately. Natural law, the laws of time and space, have no relevance. Stunning description. I think with you know when you, um, I don't know much about science and relativity and all that, but they talk about the different um, spheres of, of time that all kind of pile in on top of each other, and that's kind of what I think he's talking about is, um, although they're all separated, everyone's together, and it's just hard for us to understand because we're just human, so everybody has its own space and time, but it, if I can picture a science fiction show of like piles of time on top of time and space on top of space, that's what it would be. Yeah. One of the troubles that I have with that um, melody is that, that I'm not sure, even with relativity, or my, no scientific theory can get close to what Dante's describing because they will always be bound by you know, time and space. What he's saying is, there in heaven, and, I, and you know, I'm using relative terms now, if somebody's a million miles away in heaven, he's right up close. Or, or here, put it different. So we're walking, we're together, all of us are taking a stroll. And three blocks away, we see somebody approaching, and we say, that's Mary. You know, and, and she gets closer and closer, and you say, yeah, it is Mary. But there was a time when you couldn't make her out. 
you know, because the laws of time and space affect us here. In heaven, that's not so. If somebody's, I'm, you know that this is absurd because I'm, I'm contradicting myself. If somebody's a million miles away, that person is up close. There's distance does not affect. There is no far or near. The laws of time and space do not apply, relativity or not. We're in a different realm. So once again, everything Dante's doing is showing us we are we have passed beyond this world into a world and he's he's doing it all by taking things that are familiar to us as a way of jumping off to show us the, these are our natural beginnings we're by nature we have a nature we're bound by time and space christ came into it he took it on but faith takes us particularly because of what christ did into another order where the transfiguration took place where all that we know at the time and space doesn't apply. So the language, the trans, you know, the transhumanization, the, the flips in time when he said he was already there before he even know, you know, all of those things again and again and again are, are making it possible to, to take into us this experience of faith and what it opens. That's not a matter of something subjective. It's not us making something. It's what's there. This is God's order. This is his universe. There's a glory to it. At the center of this universe is this glorious thing called a human being. God so loved it, he sent his son to redeem it. His son took on our nature. There is no greater work affirming the worth of our human universe. You know, our and, and the human being than Dante. Shakespeare's along with him, but is everybody following this? That this what's you know what he's doing here with these metaphors and Connie, did you have you are, are you do you have a question or Well no, I was just saying that's very comforting knowing that if I barely make it into heaven it's still gonna be glorious. <laughs> yes. I'm so glad you said that. I hope that answer I hope that answers it's melody great. with that I'm like, yes. yes, good. Good for you. Yeah, it doesn't matter awesome. if you're in the back row because there will be no back row in it doesn't matter yeah that is so amazing so amazing they're all there one with each other all remember i mean the picarda announced the principle in his will is mine she's not going to go against it she's got everything to be grateful for you know they're all there each according to their own perfection whatever it was but they're all there and into all all in othering God, I mean, can you imagine a greater glory? Here, let me give you one one close um, that's a sort of comic add-on to what you just said, Connie. I, I had a chance to teach in Rome, I don't know, 15 years ago, and, and taught at John Cabot University there in Rome. And I, it, Before my conversion, the one place I wanted to go was England because of all the poets. But after the conversion, the one place I wanted to go was Rome, just more than anything. And I went and I knew some friends and asked about getting an, how do you get an audience and went to this um, office um, to get tickets. Suzanne was not there yet. I was teaching and she was going to come with her mom later. And she and her mom and two of her kids came, Amy and Jonathan, and we were there. My mom was dying at the time and, and I, when I was keeping in touch with her and I called one night and she just sounded really bad. I had to leave. 
Um, but I managed to get a ticket for an, an audience by, <laughs> by accident, if, if such things be. I was out on the, on the piazza the day after I arrived because I just wanted to go there to see what was going on. And something was going on. I thought it was a, you know, tourist groups there for the, uh, what's the, with all the Michelangelo and the Sistine Chapel. But it was an audience and I didn't know that. Get this, this is so funny. So I'm standing there in wonder, just wondering what's going on. And suddenly these people are go by and they say, I have an extra ticket. Would you like one? <laughs> So, without, you know, planning to, God, I, I, it just shakes me to even talk about it. So I said, of course, and I went, I was in the back row, the very back row, waiting for the, this is John Paul, when he was very frail, very, very frail. Um, and um, Suzanne had not c come yet, and I was in the back row writing a letter to her in tears, just in tears. He hadn't appeared yet, but I'd just been there. Put me back with the disciples. The walls were gone. They, the walls were not there. I was back with them and wrote a tearful letter to her and the kids. And, and she came, and then I had to go, and I was in the back row. And after the audience, um, John Paul had to leave by the back way because he was too frail. There was a, a, um, a group of uh, um, monks, the... Um, not Asian, Tibetan. was huh? Tibetan, yeah. Who had been in the front row, who'd gone on stage to receive John Paul's blessing. He went back. They came down. The people were swarming to the aisles just to touch them, just to touch these, you know, monks. I left, and then a couple weeks later, whenever school's out, Suzanne and the kids came, and I had to leave. And I told her what to do to get the ticket, so I made these arrangements, and there was a foul up, but she ended up getting it. In the last week when we were together, her mom um, came up with an injury, so she was in a wheelchair. I left, gave them directions. They got the tickets, and they were there, you know, in these huge crowds, moving towards the auditorium where the Pope gave his audience. And some of the ushers saw Suzanne's mom in a wheelchair, and they took her past all the crowds and put her in the front seat. And then after the audience... By the way, her mother is staunch Protestant. Absolutely, Suzanne grew up in a Protestant family. Quaker. Quaker, um, and anyway, so Suzanne and, and her mother get to go up on stage, and John Paul gives them a blessing. And her mother's up there going, "Can we leave now? Can we?" I mean, she, you know, and she, she's just the kind of person who didn't. It wasn't that she didn't want the blessing. She just is self-conscious about being in crowds, and so her response is, can we leave? I found out about this later. I had to sit in the back seat, and they got a front seat and a blessing. There is no justice in the world. I don't want to hear anybody complaining about justice on this program. <laughs> Connie, I'm with you. If In the back row, <laughs> there will be no back row <laughs> there. <laughs> Whatever the injustices and inequalities here, there will be none there. <laughs> Let me stop. Any any comments or questions or before we close for the night? I'm just a little bit. There, there's so much in here that I, I was reading. I read I read the the rest of it, and um, I was supposed to write my questions down, but I didn't. But one of them is on the 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 age of the earth or the age of creation. Yeah. Where it talks about Adam, that you know, honestly, from it's only about seventy two thousand years. 
So how does how do how <laughs> how how do they how did they come up with this thirty billion years and all that stuff? I don't get yeah, that. let me leave it, Connie, because we're I'm going to go back to cover some of these things because I I meant to cover them, but we we just took a lot of time in the other one. But I, I want to go back over that. I want to come to Adam and look at his... Dante had those four questions, and I'll look at them. So, okay. Um, and I'll look at some other things that we just brushed over tonight. Um, Predestination. Right. Right. And I thought, once again, Dante's answer was, you know, he put it back. I don't want to go there, but it, he, he did the same thing with that that he did with the, you know, the justice and mercy. Um no class next week, okay? I'll write a note so that everybody who's not here will get a note, but I'll also put together a list of some things and suggestions. I would really like to hear from you guys what what you would like to do. What um, You know, we've been together a long time. I, um, I just have to say thank you to all of you, and I'm saying that from my heart. It's It's been a real gift for me to have you all doing this with me. Um, genuine gift. I'm my affections for you run deep. Um, I'm grateful, but it may be time to stop. You know, I don't know what you guys want to do, so I'll I'll write a note and let you all know. Um, next next week we won't meet, but the following week we will meet and um, finish the commedia, and then maybe start something else. We'll we'll see what we're going to do. Okay. And maybe see you on Sunday. Yeah, it would be great to see you on Sunday if um, if you guys have time. It would be wonderful to see you. Um, you guys, I'll be there. <laughs> you guys, stay healthy and keep us in your prayers, and we'll keep you in our prayers too. Okay. I would really like to hear what all this literature has meant to you guys. I'm saying that very, very seriously. You know, we're we're doing tough stuff, and you guys have stuck with us. And what we're doing in Dante right now is not easy intellectually. It's just not easy at all. So what you're doing is sort of amazing. I would really love to hear from you guys what, what this means, why you guys are hanging around. Okay, you guys have a good couple of weeks, and um, it would be nice to see you this weekend. All right, thank you so much. See you later. Thank you. Thank you, Bye, guys. Thank you very much.